today we're going to continue with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We are on element five, Jesus Christ, the only mediator. And so in, in uh, talking about that subject of Jesus Christ being the only mediator between God and man, uh, we are necessarily dealing with a subject in theology called Christology, and we're kind of introducing that subject. Um, in the overall series, this is the 38th lesson. In Element 5, the, the Studies of Christ, this is the 18th lesson. So um, in the, the, this, this subject of, of Christology is going to become a book that we're going to write uh, Deanna and myself and our other team members in a couple of years called uh, uh, Consider Jesus. And uh, we want, uh, so in looking at uh, the, the first four elements, what we're really trying to do is understand that everything in the, in the humanistic secular culture around us and pop psychology, pop sociology, what's taught at universities and those subjects today, even the Christian universities, minimizes the difference between God and man as if you could uh, improve yourself in the Lord by moralistic effort rather than by grace alone. And you cannot, not, you cannot uh, come to God except by grace alone, nor you can you continue to come to God and be sanctified and grow by grace alone. And we need to see how great the gap between God and us is. Even though, in a sense, that's the bad news, the reason the world doesn't want to hear our good news is because they don't believe the bad news, and you don't need the good news if you don't see the bad news, which is true news. Uh, your actual condition bet between you and God is uh, more than problematic. Element four is the fact that in all gospel presentations, they covered the history of Israel, and... Um, uh, that's so necessary because Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, as we're going to continue on that theme, uh, which is a big theme here at Grace Christian Fellowship, both with John and myself over the last couple of years, that Christ fulfills everything in the Old Testament. There's not 300 prophecies or 330 like you might hear. There's more than 3,330. And uh, the whole... Every page of the Old Testament is a revelation of Christ. So um, that's kind of, that's very important that we get that. So, hi Kyle, how are you? So, um, and the other reason it's important is because uh, what, what has happened in America, many people like Joseph Hellerman in his good book that we use called When the Church Was a Family. He's a professor at Biola University and an elder at Oceanside Christian Fellowship, I think it's called. He, uh, the, the excellent book, When the Church is a Family, he identifies contemporary Christianity as radical individualism, which is what we have in the secular culture. And the call of the church is not to be changed by the culture like we've progressively had in the last couple of centuries, but to change the culture. And first, we have to get the culture out of us. We have to get Egypt out of Israel before we can get, uh, you know, get uh, Israel delivered. So uh, we, can't, we can't change Egypt in, unless we, God first changes us as a way of life, as a people, and so forth. And so 
when you begin to understand that there are no gospel presentations in the New Testament, not a single one, that doesn't cover quite a bit about the history of Israel, and today we don't conclude that in the four spiritual laws or the five this or that, or any, any gospel presentation you might hear, I've only been able to find one book, uh, Scott McKnight's book called uh, King, uh, King Jesus, The King Jesus Gospel, uh, which we have on the back shelves. That it's the only book I've been able to find that that uh, argues for using the history of Israel as part of your gospel presentations, and uh, it's necessary. There was there, you can't find any in the New Testament without that, because it helps us keep in mind that God it has been, is, and always will be after a people for His own possession his special treasure in the earth, a people living a, c a culture, a community, a way of life, uh, doing the Father's will and in, in living in every area, you know, the way we handle our finances, the way we treat our wife, the way we raise our children, the way we uh, approach vocation and our, our work calling and so forth. Every area of life we are to bring captive to the, to the dominion of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, Without understanding the history of Israel as part of the gospel, you can reduce the gospel to how it affects me and, uh, and my salvation and my justification instead of the real the word justification, as N.T. Wright points out and others in, in their, uh, his book of books, many books about Paul, the word justification actually is not just an individual justification before God, but it's, it's, get, it's making everything right in the cosmos. And, uh, and that's really, really important. So um, that's a little bit about what we've been doing. And then, so after we got the 20 weeks on that, we've been doing 17 weeks on Christology. The first uh, A through H, whatever that adds up to about eight or nine uh, weeks, we did, uh, I think it's eight, if I, it, the first so many weeks, we dealt with the normal things that most churches and most theology classes would cover with regard to Christology. Uh, since then, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus in specific. Um, most people would not focus much on analyzing and studying from the scriptures what Jesus' ministry was and is. But Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ministry goes on today as it always was, as it was when he was incarnated and living among us, and as it continued to be. The whole point of his speeches to the disciples in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, which is John's account of the Last Supper, it's his last time before the crucifixion that he's going to talk to his disciples. So he speaks the most important things, and he says more about the ongoing uh relationship that they're going to have with the Holy Spirit than at any other place in the Bible because he's going to continue his ministry through the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave them as or orphans. They're going to continue doing what he did through the power and person of the Holy Spirit. So um, then in his last address to disciples before his ascension recorded for us in Luke 24, 44 through 53 and Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 8, he also says a lot about the coming of the Holy Spirit and it's continuing his mission from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in fact, you're not actually supposed to begin your ministry 
until you stay in Jerusalem and, and, get re, and receive power from on high. Until you have a powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, you can be of little effectiveness in the kingdom of God. So uh, with that, uh, we're, uh, we've covered uh, a, the whole list there where it's about halfway down your pace, 5I to 5Q, um, concerning the ministry of Jesus. But I'm just going to pick up with 5P, where we talked about how Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. Um, and then last week, 5Q, we looked at how Jesus is the quintessential Christ. And just to review, because this will be important for today, we talked about the word tupas, or chupas, probably pronounced, uh, that appears 15 times in the Greek New Testament, but normally in most English translations only appears two to four times because it's sometimes translated as pattern, uh, or foreshadowing, or, or model, or example, or, or something like that. So um, the, uh, the uh, what was I saying here? I lost my train of thought. Sorry. So the, um, the quintessential Jesus is what we looked at last week, and we looked at types. So therefore, we looked at the uh, three words that have type in them, archetype or prototype. Many, many, many persons and many, many events and many, many things in the Old Testament are prototypes of Christ or antitypes of Christ, or I mean, archetypes of Christ. An antitype is that figure to whom the, 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 that is foreshadowed by the archetype or the prototype, and Christ is the ultimate antitype for everything. So God created man, but Christ is the ultimate man. God created prophets, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And uh, so um, that's what we looked at last week, and then we took a tornado tour through uh, the biblical prototypes, beginning with Adam and Jesus being Benadam, the second Adam. Luke calls Jesus the son of Adam around 34 to 38 times. Abel, who is the first prophet, and Hebrews talks about how Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. We covered three ways that it does so. Isaac, uh, who is the true seed spoken of to Abraham, that in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the true lamb, in Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to sacrifice a lamb, uh, and Isaac says, Where is the, where's the sacrifice, Father? Um, Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. But in the Hebrew, we, showed two, we, used, we quoted out of two Jewish Bibles, one called the Complete Jewish Bible and one called the um, Orthodox Jewish Bible. The, the Hebrew actually means God himself will be the sacrifice. And uh, so uh, it's, that's a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice of Christ. Uh, God and Abraham is a type of the father in that in incident. Uh, Isaac, a type of the son. And God, the father, sacrificed his only son on our behalf and so forth. So we went all through that. Uh, we kind of ran out of time. I, I don't even know if I got to Elijah, the fountainhead of the covenant lawsuit prophets. Now that's kind of important. Uh, so uh, the ones that are uh, in that list uh, at C, about th three-quarters of the way down the page, where it says tornado tour through, uh, look at the things I've underlined. I've underlined three of the uh, major figures who were prototypes of prophets. And, uh, and Jesus is the antitype of all three of those people. 
That's why Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because he is, Jesus is saying, I am the law and the prophets. So today we're going to look at more on the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to look at an introduction. We're probably going to, introduction, because we're hopefully next week will be the conclusion, of two weeks on Jesus being the prophetic prosecutor of God's covenant lawsuit. Now, something that um, I finally found a book just this past week. For I've been looking for a book uh, since 1998 on this subject. Uh, when I first understood this, I, I, it, I actually keep this Bible around because that, like, when I was reading Matthew for probably the 100th time on my lunch breaks at work, and I began to understand Matthew as God's covenant lawsuit against Israel, it was such amazing stuff to me. I, and it's not like it came out of like, you know, God downloaded it in some spooky way, but I had, you know, started to understand the importance of the kingdom in 1975 and, and covenants and that all God always works through his kingdom through covenants and all this. You know, it sort of was a culmination, but it all came together to understand that Matthew, the, the reason the early church put Matthew first, and the mo modern people say, don't read Matthew first, read John first or whatever. You know, the, the early church had it right. Uh, Matthew comes first, and it comes first for very important reasons. It's a necessary, it's the key to understanding the whole Bible, because it's the key to understanding both covenants. And so uh, Matthew isn't just, as most people would say, a, a book written to the Jews to show them that they missed their Christ. That's part of what it is. But that's a subset of the bigger picture. The whole book is all the prophets from Abel to Malachi uh, saying, uh, I, have a, I have a beef with my people. I, I chose you out of all the peoples of the earth. Deuteronomy uh, 6 tells us that God chose Israel not because they were mightier in number or had any endearing quality, just because of grace. You're sitting in Christ today, not because you're such a good person and you made wise choices. No one can come to the Father unless the, uh, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. You, you were chosen of God. You were foreknown, predestined, elected from all eternity. Before time existed, God knew he was going to bring you to Christ. And um, so, um, uh, I keep losing my train of thought today. So, uh, sorry, getting old. Uh, <laughs> senior moments, I guess. All right, so... Um, Matthew is just, uh, Matthew's whole purpose is to take the message of the law, Moses, and the prophets, and to, for the first time in Israel's history, properly interpret it, apply it, and be the final statement thereof. So with regard to the law in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which is the foundational teachings of what it means to be a follower of Christ, Matthew 5, 14 through the rest of the chapter, he, he becomes the new Moses 
but not really the new Moses, the ultimate Moses, the fulfilled Moses, the true Moses, the Moses that Moses was only a foreshadowing of. And uh, as Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me uh, to, uh, to give, and uh, uh, it'll come about that everyone who listens to him or, and everyone who does not listen to him will be cut off from his people which is exactly what happened at the end of Matthew, because they could not receive either Moses or Jesus. Uh, Jesus pronounced uh, sanctions on them, which were totally fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, exactly as he prophesied them in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, called the called the Mount, uh, uh, Mount Olive Address. Sorry. So... Before we get into this, I want to just explain. The ministry of Jesus is a double-edged sword. One of the major things you'll see all through the Bible is, is the term, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord does not only refer to the second coming of Christ in the final judgment. The day of the Lord refers to whatever uh, that prophet is prophesying is going to be the day of reckoning, reckoning for what he's prophesied. Okay, and so... Um, the warning, especially uh, uh, choose De Zephaniah, Amos, uh, the warning of, of, the, of the prophets is that the day of the Lord is not necessarily something to be excited about or anticipated about, but for everyone. Even within the people of the God, God comes in, he can't, we always pray, oh God, be merciful, God be loving, I pray that, I know, I know, uh, but God comes in all of who he is, his whole holiness, his whole grace, his whole justice. And so he can't come without executing judgment. He is coming to judge the earth. Probably the best Christian concert I was ever at was in a band called Lamb. It was these two Jewish guys that sang a lot of songs out of the Old Testament and and uh, they had this song from the Psalms called, He is coming to judge the earth. He is coming to judge the earth. He, you know, it had kind of a catchy beat. I mean, you could, you could dance to it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, so it was a great, uh, it was a great, uh, is Jason around? No, I guess not. So, um, so the thing that you need to understand is Jesus comes to establish his people in a total mission of sovereign grace. Uh, grant, he's the author and perfecter of faith, and as Ephesians 2.8 tells us, grace always works through faith, and it's a free gift, and he's coming to create his people, but he's also coming to judge those who don't receive him, those who have killed the prophets that they were sent and ultimately will kill God's only son. That's very important to understand. That's, if you don't see that, you'll miss the whole message. That is talked about in almost every epistle of the New Testament and never talked about in modern American Christianity. So that's really, really important. Uh, so the second thing I want you to understand is as we get go through there, I want you to understand that Jesus is standing on the shoulders of Moses, Elijah, and all the prophets, as we said, Speaking, and he executes the eight components of all biblical covenants. So if you don't are familiar with those, see the Kingdom of God series, uh, chapter 3C, which is on our podcast. And, and at the end of the uh, outline, I've put an email address if you want an outline to listen to that. But every covenant in the Bible has eight components. 
Now, that's another thing you won't find out there. You will find, if you look at covenant structure or something on Google, you'll find guys like Ray Sutton that have five or, and, uh, and three and four. But really, there are at least eight, and honestly, I like the number eight. So um, there's a couple cases where you could argue I should have split them into two, and there could have been nine or ten. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's certainly not just five elements of all biblical covenants. All biblical covenants come out of the Far East ancient tradition called Susantry Covenants, and I don't really have time for that, except just to say that the Bible borrows the forms of the cultures around it to say the exact opposite message. Okay, so you'll get a lot of uh, people that are anti-supernatural or liberal or don't believe in Scripture will say, oh, this shows the evolution of religion in Israel because Genesis 1 and 2 reads a lot like the structure of the other mythopoeic cosmogonies of the other nations around. Nothing could be further from the truth. It uses the same forms as that found in Egypt and Mesopotamia to say the exact opposite of what they're saying. So those, the eight are listed at the bottom of your page, but we're going to flip over and we're going to get into them in a little bit more detail. So what I'm going to do from, from here to the end of next week is in points A and B on the back page. The first thing we're going to do today is look at, at all eight components of all the covenants as they appear in Matthew. And we're going to give a cursory, that is a, a not un, incomplete, a representative sample of them. We're not going to cover every single way that Matthew fulfills these eight points. But we're going to give you enough that as you read Matthew, you could use these eight points to find all of them if you wanted. Then next week, we're going to actually do an excursion through Matthew and we're going to focus on Matthew's chapter 15 to 25 uh, and uh, see the, the focus. And we're going to go through the parables and the eight woes and, and the Mount Olivet Discourse. And all of that's going to be only done, you know, you could write books on that. We could do a, a three-year series on that. It's, it's good, rich stuff. So I'm going to try to give you enough to build on that as you study the scriptures yourself. My goal is always in teaching to give you the tools to, to study the Bible and get more out of it. Uh, there's no way I could cover everything that you need to know. I want to give you the things that you need to know so that you can go find out what you need to know. Is there uh, any, Sam, I need a, a glass of water because this like is not good sound for the sound system. There's supposed, supposed to be a glass of water up here. Thanks. So, um, I hope that makes sense. Like next week, we're going to look at the parable of the landowner and, and all, all sorts of things. Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and the, and the sad Sanhedrin, that is the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, to, um, you know, to uh, make his case against Israel and say the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it arguably the key verse in all of Matthew. So let's go through these eight. The first one, identification of parties and declaration of prince of the new order, is probably one of the two in this that you could say that could be two points, really, Uh, and the other one being ceremonies of enactment and renewal. However, you could actually say signs and symbols could come under ceremonies of enactment and renewal. So, I mean, the, the numbering system is ar- arbitrary, but getting all the aspects of the covenant, uh, of covenant is not arbitrary. 
uh, all scriptural covenants have all of these points. The marriage covenant has these points. You should study this stuff if you're going to get married. Um, or if you are married. Or if you're thinking about getting married. Uh, or if you're praying that you'll get married. <laughs> so uh, let's start with this. Identification of parties and declaration of the new order. So in Susandry covenants, they would start off with declaring, it would be after, after one uh, nation had conquered another, they were going to impose their will on them, tax them, govern them, and so forth. And so they would introduce themselves as the new covenant Lord. It's very similar to the feudal system, if you know much about that economic and political system in Europe in the Middle Ages. The, the covenant Lord would say, I'm the king. I'm the, and then, of course, in the ancient world, they like never, I'm the great potentate, the almighty, or so forth. And that's why God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. But, uh, and uh, you are not. <laughs> and uh, I have chosen by grace to conquer you, and I am going to uh, give you all the benefits of my benevolent rule, and, uh, and this is what I'm going to provide for you, and this is what you must provide for me. Thank you, Samuel. First Samuel. Um, so, uh, so he ba basically, uh, the, the covenant Lord declares who he is, and declares what he's what the new order is going to be, what the new civilization is going to be, what the new what the new church is going to be. And uh, so Matthew follows this structure. So here are some representative, not not complete, not exhaustive list of uh, so that you know that you can kind of make your way through Matthew. Uh, how the 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 declaring the who they uh, who he is. And what the new order is one and the same. First of all, the genealogy of Christ. The genealogy of Matthew. By the way, the same covenant structure is in Matthew and Luke. Those two, those two gospels um, have this whole covenant lawsuit. And Matthew comes to focus in Matthew 15 through 25. And Luke comes to focus in Luke 9, 51 through 20, verse 20 or something like that. So, um, but they cover a lot of the same ground and a lot of the same points and a few different ones. So both of them have a genealogy. Mark does not have a genealogy because Mark's point is to show Jesus as the one who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And a servant had no genealogy in the, old, in the ancient world uh, because his identity was wrapped up in his master. So Mark is saying that Jesus identity is wrapped up in the father and he came to serve and so so should our identity be that we we're not about making a name for ourselves or doing anything for self-advancement we're about uh c coming to give our life as a ransom for many and to serve john's genealogy goes to because he's showing jesus as the eternal word it goes in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and it goes directly to god the, that he's the eternally begotten Son of God. Matthew focuses on how J Jesus came through David and through Abraham. So it traces the genealogy of Christ back to Abraham to show that he's the true seed of Abraham and to show that he's the true seed of David and the true king of Israel. 
and he's the one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are fulfilled completely in Christ. So that's uh, one place. The secondly, the Magi. God chose to have wise men from a completely distant culture who had no exposure to Hebrew culture come from afar because he's capable of revealing himself and the identity of his son to whomever he wills. And they, they have such a revelation of it that they travel. Uh, we can't even understand in modern times what they went through. They must have had some revelation. Uh, you know, we can fly on a plane, and, you know, I've, I actually flew to Louisiana for business and back one day. And, uh, you know, uh, we, but we, you know, uh, these guys risked everything and left their whole life behind, not knowing if they'd ever even come back or if they'd make it there safe or anything like that. Um, so the Magi... Uh, declare who Jesus is. That's what we uh, uh, John taught on Epiphany recently. That's what we celebrate in Epiphany. John the baptizer says, this is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus. And I'm not worthy to untie even the thong of his sandal. He'll baptize with the Spirit and fire, and he will cleanse his threshing floor. The law, the prophets, uh, we're all true and all of God and all a revelation of Christ, but no one by of themselves could use the law and prophets to, to have the their own threshing floor, nor the people of God's threshing floor uh, cleansed. Jesus himself will cleanse your threshing floor in our threshing floor. Uh, John, uh, then as John taught on a, a week or two ago, which was the last week, two weeks ago, John the Baptist, two weeks ago, John made a very good point about how John the Baptist declares his need. So he identifies Christ by saying, I have need to be baptized from you. I'm a sinner. You're not. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think, don't we have this backwards, Jesus? And uh, Jesus said, uh, so, you know, permitted at this time to fulfill our righteousness. Jesus' temptation is all about Satan trying to get Jesus to buy an identity that he's not. To take a shortcut to, to the worship of the whole world and to be king of the cosmos. Uh, so John, even the temptation in the wilderness identifies who Jesus is. Um. Then Jesus' very beginning acts in both Luke 4 and Matthew 4, when he comes out of the wilderness temptation, he goes into the synagogues and begins to proclaim who he is. He announces, the first thing he does in his public ministry is announcing who is to announce who he is. He reads Isaiah the prophet and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst and uh, he talks about how there were many widows in the day of Elijah, and they, and, uh, but God, Elijah was sent only to the Syrophoenician women, basically announcing to Israel, your, the, because the big judgment against Israel, one of the major themes of, the, of all the prophets, is Israel was supposed to, as Ray Nethery says often, mediate the presence of God to the nations around it. And they refused to because of their uh, narrow-minded 
prejudice and they're uh, turning the church inward to what we do inside church walls uh, kind of mentality. And time and time and time again, that's why the, when Jesus turns the tables over in the temple, everyone says it's because they were doing marketing in the temple. No, because they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles, because they were cutting off the Gentiles from the kingdom of God. Woe are you, Pharisees, because you weigh down men with burdens too heavy to bear. You won't touch them yourselves, and those who are trying to enter in, you hinder, both of Jews and Gentiles. So um, Jesus proclaims that, you know, Elijah was sent to the Syrophoenician woman. In other words, that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is going to now finally be fulfilled in Christ. And within less than a generation, the gospel had been taken to as far away as Sweden, Norway, and India. And in 2,000 years, Israel hadn't done any of that. They had just hated the Gentiles and thought, felt they were superior. Because so, religion will produce condemnation inside yourself when, you're, when your performance works based. And it'll produce a criticism of others that you're better. And so you won't have grace for those who are outside. You won't be able to put yourself in their shoes because you'll be like the Pharisees who said you were born entirely in sin. And they're implying they weren't. They didn't get, they didn't get the real message of the gap in, that we studied in, in uh, the first 20 messages. So uh, going on from here, uh, Peter, uh, the new lawgiver in, in Matthew, Jesus not only gives the most, says, I didn't come to abolish, uh, Matthew 5, 14 through the rest of the chapter, I didn't come just to abolish the law, but I came to put it in a force. And he actually warns judgment over against today's church called antinomianism because he says whoever abrogates the law and teaches others to will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever follows the law and teaches other two will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But it was never, the law was never intended to be do, done by self-righteous, self-effort, self-help books, by moralizing, therapeutic, deistic approach to Christ. It was meant to be done totally by the exchange of your life for his life and living out of the power of his life. Because you can't bring forth one thought that's not completely wicked that doesn't initiate with the grace and of God in relationship to God. Anything that's good that came through you is from Christ. So uh, Jesus as the new lawgiver says, you guys keep twisting the law. You said you're not supposed to commit adultery. You think that's enough, but the law is not just outward behavior. I say don't lust in your heart. You're not supposed to commit murder, but don't even be angry at your brothers. Don't diminish their life by having an... When you're angry at someone, you're basically being prideful and just saying, somehow, I'm more important than you. And I'm upset because you may, you know, you cut me off in traffic and, or, you know, what is, all, all road rage and all these kind of things in our culture is, is just immaturity on steroids. So... Peter's confession, thou art the Christ. He, who do people say that I am? And, and then, then he goes, who do you say that I am? And this is what we're studying, by the way, in this section is really everything falls or rises for the church, 
and for your individual Christians on who you say Jesus is. And his kingdom is built on that revelation, that declaration, that identification of the covenant Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, then the, you know, um, my church, uh, I will build my church, the gates of Hades. And he's basically saying, uh, well, well, we'll get into that a little bit later. Mount of Transfiguration, uh, you know, God, God overshadows Jesus, says, this is my beloved son, as he, as he did. He, I, God the Father identifies Jesus by public audio speaking several times in the Gospels. Uh, one, at the, one at his baptism, one at the Mount of Transfiguration, one in the Gospel of John at another event. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, uh, I can't go into that further. We've taught on what, there's more to that, but I need to move on. Um, the triumphal entry, Jesus, uh, the suffering servant. Israel could not re- understand who Jesus was, even though he was in their midst. And that's really, that's the essence of walking with God. Like, do you understand in the midst of your trials? Do you understand in the midst of this situation and that situation? Do you see Christ in that brother next to you? And can you get the Christ out of them? Can you get Christ out of your circumstances? Do you recognize him? They they, they could not recognize Jesus because they had no theology of suffering, much like we have, you know, the prosperity gospel today and no one could have a big church or, or uh, sell many books if they talked about suffering and, and uh, how, uh, what a great blessing it is and how you should pursue, as Paul said, in, uh, that, uh, that, that he wanted to partake in the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, you've not fully enjoyed Christ until you've partaken more and more and more progressively in the fellowship of his sufferings. Don't avoid that because it's sweet. Um, and you know, we can, uh, then the Pharisees by what authority they're saying, who are you? That actually goes into the next point hierarchy. They're saying what, you know, because covenants are always about who really is the Lord here and who is the right delegated representatives of the Lord. Kent and I were having a discussion about a concept I like where, uh, you know, when you, in the days of uh, imperialism, when they made colonies, they would conquer a, a particular colony, and then they would send a governor to the colony, or they might settle a colony like in, in, uh, in North America and so forth, or conquer colonies like in Africa and so forth, uh, in, in India at the time. And then they would send a governor, and the purpose of the governor was to bring the laws, the culture, the spirit, the attitude, the, the, the intellectual understanding, everything that pertained to that king's culture to export it there. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell. He's been sent by the Father and the Son to bring the culture of the kingdom, to bring everything about the kingdom. And uh, that's why if you, if you uh, go to, to, to um, a country and uh, a lot of people drink tea, they probably were an English colony. <laughs> That's why, um, right? The Kenyans, they love their tea, right? Because <laughs> they were a British colony. Uh, if they like coffee, they're probably French. But uh, 
or disciples of Stephen Leopold. Um, so we could go on and on with that. We need to move on. Hierarchy, uh, the genealogy has the whole, because it goes back through David and all the kings. So because it's identifying Jesus as king and he's the true leader. And uh, uh, some examples, like uh, um, the Pharisees say, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons, right? So like who's, who's you know, they're accusing, G and that's where Jesus gets into talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You always talk to you, I always love when, you always know someone's just getting started in the Lord because they'll come to you and go, I read that verse about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and I had bad thoughts about the Holy Spirit. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I always chuckle a little bit in a nice way and uh, just say, let's read the passage in context. What it means is to be so hardened in your heart that nothing can reveal Christ to you, because, and you would actually attribute his miraculous redemptive acts to Satan himself. And, uh, and you, the truth is, you could not possibly be concerned that you blasphemed the Holy Spirit if you had done so. Anyone who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit is not concerned about it. Uh, they will be <laughs> on the other side of the curtain of death and life. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, so, um, where were we? So, uh all, you know, the, uh, the hierarchy, the chair of Moses, you know, at the beginning of uh, in Matthew 23, 1 through 12, before verse 13 starts the eight woes uh, against Israel and its leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. Uh, before that, he talks about how the scribes have put themselves in the chair of Moses. So they are setting themselves up as the authoritative interpreters of God's word and the authoritative bringers of the people of God and so forth. He says, therefore, you know, for the time being, until because they're going to be eliminated uh, in about 40 years, do as they say, but don't do as they do. Right? So he identifies who's the real authority, him. Um you know, uh, the triumphal entry again, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He identifies who owns the temple. Then uh, he cleanses the temple, and two chapters later, he disowns or renounces the temple and calls it Ichabod, as we'll get into more next week. Next, uh, uh, next every covenant has ethical laws. We've already touched on that. Uh, Jesus is the antitypical lawgiver. He's the true Moses. He comes to give us what the law already said. Do not read, like, if you could just get this one idea in your head and reread the Gospels with, and, and get the American ideas out of your mind and just read it from as the biblical Bible actually talks in itself. If Jesus is not ever saying to the Pharisees, I'm not upholding the truth of the law. That's what most people think is Jesus is saying, oh, you're using the law and it's not about the law. We should just be under grace, whatever, whatever nebulous idea that means. That's not at all the case. What he's doing is that the Pharisees and, and especially the Sadducees had a thing called the Mishnah and the Midrash, and they had heaped all these little details on the laws that were misinterpretations of the law. And they were so big, it would, it would be like... It would be like uh, 
uh, all the notes in a study Bible being, and they had it memorized. They had the text itself and all the notes <laughs> memorized. And they had every little thing, like you couldn't spit on the Sabbath day, because if you spit on the Sabbath day, you might germinate a seed. And the spit could possibly hit a seed. And if it possibly hit a seed, that seed could germinate. And then you did work on the Sabbath day, and you were in big trouble. That's how legalistic and ridiculous it all was. So... um, Oaths, confessions. Gabriel uh, confesses who Christ is. The Magi confess who Christ is. The Father, this is my beloved Son. Peter's confession, Jesus' declaration. Uh, the centurion's confession. This truly was the Son of God, a Gentile pagan who saw the crucifixion and had a revelation from God. Oh, this was the Son of God. We just killed God. Um. Where were we? Um, Jesus' declaration uh, uh, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Ceremonies of enactment, you see it in John Baptist, Lord's Supper, crucifixion, resurrection, and so forth. All of these, every covenant has a ceremony of enactment. That's why you have to save sex for marriage. You have to make a covenant before God and man or it's it's uh, outside of, out, out of the bounds. Uh, the uh, all covenants have a ceremony of enactment. That's why in marriage counseling, if people, if a marriage is having trouble, I might or some other counselor might ask, "How's your physical life? How's your intimacy life?" Because uh, you you are supposed to reinvigorate the covenant uh, with uh, intimacy regularly, just as we are supposed to have the Lord's table as part of our worship every Lord's day. And in modern churches, they do it once a month or so, but there was no churches that didn't do it on the Lord's Day in the first 1,850 years of Christianity. Never. Because the apostles did it on the Lord's Day every week. And it's really, really important. It's not empty symbolism like modern people say, but it actually contains the power and grace of God to renew the covenant. Like all through the Old Testament, they'll say, let's gather at Gilgal and renew the covenant. We, you know, every, the, the Christian, because the Lord instituted the covenant in the resurrection on the Lord's day, early in the morning, the Christians met on the Lord's day, early in the morning to renew the covenant every week, because it was God who gave days, weeks, months, and years. And God had called his people to renew the covenant on the last day of the week, uh, you know, every, every week in the old covenant, but the old covenant was about the old heavens and the old earth that's passing away. And the new covenant is about the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth that has come in Christ and is descending and continuing to descend and enlarge through the church. You are the new Jerusalem. And that's why the Lord's Day Supper is, is a ceremony of renewal that needs to be done every week, uh, etc. So, uh, signs and symbols, some... The miracles of Jesus were especially uh, important, and he, that's why they actually continue, because he's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. To have an idea that miracles cease with the apostles is actually to fight against God himself, because they didn't. 
our unbelief is fighting. We are, you know, Jesus was not able to do many miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. And, and since the Enlightenment, Western Christians have had a lot of unbelief. But God does miracles all through the Christianity of the world that doesn't have that Western unbelieving natural mindset. And he wants to do them in his people. The limitation is us. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they testify they are actually a sign and symbol of the covenant. Now, people don't necessarily get uh, become Christians because they see signs and symbols or even experience them of the covenant. As Jesus in his denounced the cities, woe are you, Capernaum, and so forth, that had not received his miracles as part of his woes and so forth. So, uh, but ceremony, signs and symbols are the fact that he, especially the fact that he cast out demons and healed the sick, because that shows his lordship over life. Uh, lastly, sanctions. All, all covenants have sanctions, and, and they have principles of succession, and we'll pick it up with the sanctions and the succession uh, next week, and then try to go through as much of Matthew 15 through 25 as we can in one week, and then you'll have to do the rest on your own. Um, we'll all see you back here in about seven minutes.